almost done with the book of Matthew. I kid, we have four chapters left. But we're beginning chapter 25 this week, and we're working through verses 1 through 13. Whereas we'll see, Jesus continues his theme uh, that he began in chapter 24. Again, that's Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Uh, That can be found on page number 987. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we pray. That you would take this word, that you would make it real to our hearts, that we might be prepared for you when you come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the very first book of the Bible, as most of us know, is the book of Genesis, and that's where we discover um, how the world came into existence, how sin and suffering entered the world. We also discover right there in the beginning of the book of Genesis how God uh, saves the world uh, through a man named, a beginning with a man named Abraham. And the way God began to save the world through Abraham was by blessing Abraham. God promised to give Abraham a land and to make him into a great nation. He promised to make Abraham's name great and then to bless the whole world through Abraham. And then Abraham had a son, and his name is Isaac, and Isaac inherited the blessing. And then Isaac had two twin sons. Esau was the oldest because he was born first, and so in that culture, he was in line to inherit everything that belonged to his father Isaac, including Abraham's blessing. Well, one day we're told in the book of Genesis Uh, Esau was out in the field working. He came home very tired, very hungry. And there was his brother Jacob making some stew. And Esau wanted some of that stew. And so Jacob, who had a habit of being deceitful, said to him, Okay, well, I'll give you some stew, but you have to sell me your birthright. 
And so Esau did. For a bowl of stew. Esau traded heaven for an impulsive moment of pleasure. And so like our passage last week, again this morning, Jesus is going to warn us that if we are going to enter the kingdom of heaven with him when he returns, we must be prepared now. We must be the kind of person who would not trade heaven for anything this world has to offer. Eternity with him and his kingdom is so much better. All this world has to offer is a bowl of soup in comparison to the riches and the glories of the kingdom of heaven. And that even though Jesus has been delayed in coming for almost 2,000 years, we must be prepared now because he could return at any moment. And then if we're not prepared, we'll be shut out of the kingdom of heaven. The door will be locked, and we will be on the outside looking in. So our passage this morning emphasizes this truth with a story. And so our outline this morning, we're going to look at our passage as a story. First, we're going to introduce the characters. Next, we're going to look at the conflict. And then finally, the conclusion. So first, the characters. In our passage last week, Jesus was very clear that one day he's going to return and there will not be any sign leading up to it. It will happen at a time when we're all eating and drinking and getting married, which means it's going to happen at a time when we least expect it. We'll be working side by side with unbelievers. One will be taken, another will be left. Therefore, Jesus warns, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then to help us understand what it looks like to be awake, Jesus told a story about a master who had two servants. The master left his servants over his household, was delayed in returning. One servant faithfully performed his duties, and another servant was wicked. And so the wicked servant interpreted his master's delay as an opportunity to beat his fellow servants and to get drunk. When the master returned, he rewarded the faithful servant with more privileges and more responsibilities. But the wicked servant, he cut up into pieces. Which means the evidence that we are awake and ready for Jesus to return is that Jesus is making us into the kind of servant who faithfully serves him. This theme now continues throughout chapter 25. Starting with our parable this morning about the ten virgins, followed by the parable of the talents next week, and then concluding with Jesus' teaching about separating the sheep from the goats at the final judgment. And so all of chapter 25 then continues to unpack this theme, where Jesus warns us that we must be ready at all times for him to return at any moment. And then he teaches us what it looks like to be ready for him. He is showing us the evidence of his grace at work in our lives. So Jesus goes on and he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet 
the bridegroom. So throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus has been teaching us about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means it's here now, because Jesus, who is the kingdom of heaven, the king of heaven, brought the kingdom with him when he came. But now, now he's teaching us what the kingdom of heaven will be like then. Then, when Jesus returns, at the end of the age, when we least expect it, on that day, the kingdom of heaven will be like a wedding, where there are ten virgins waiting with lamps for the bridegroom. In a first century Jewish wedding, the virgins, or a better translation would probably be uh, young girls who had not yet been married, which is a little bit of a mouthful, so the translators just went with virgins. These girls were part of the wedding, and what they would do is they would wait for the bridegroom to go and get his bride from her house. And while he was there at her house, there would be all kinds of ceremonies that would take up the entire day. And so in the evening then, he would make a procession with his bride back to his house for the feast. And these young girls are supposed to wait there with their lamps so that they can light the way. And since Jesus is comparing this wedding to his return at the end of the age, he is the bridegroom. And the church is waiting for Jesus to return. Just like these girls are waiting for the bridegroom, which means the ten virgins are the church. We also know the ten virgins are the church because they've been invited to the wedding. They're part of the wedding. They brought lamps to perform a very important task in the wedding. They're dressed. They think they're ready, and they're waiting, and probably very eager to participate, just like any bridesmaid would be. They're the ones who are going to light the way for the procession all the way to the wedding feast. So they're invested in the moment. They're devoted to the bridegroom. They care about this event. They obviously expect to be able to participate in the wedding feast. Just like everyone who is part of the church and professes to be a Christian expects to enter heaven. But even though these girls represent the church, Jesus tells us now that there's a distinction between the girls. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So Jesus tells us, in a very matter-of-fact kind of way, that five of these girls are wise and five of them are foolish. And the reason the girls are foolish is because they took absolutely no oil with them for their lamps, whereas the wise girls took flasks of oil for their lamps. And these lamps were basically torches. So they were oil-soaked rags on a stick so they could hold it up as they went in the procession and it would light the way. And the reason you needed extra oil is so that you could make sure to keep your torch burning all the way to the wedding feast. But notice, the foolish virgins took no oil with them. What a shocking oversight. They literally were not at all prepared to do the one thing they'd been invited to the wedding to do. And so they're here, they're dressed, they're ready, 
they think, and they're waiting, but they're totally unprepared. And they should have known. Having enough oil for their lamp should have been one of the very first items on their checklist. Just like no one leaves for a cross-country trip without filling up their car with gas first or charging their car. So those are the characters of our story. And now things are about to get even more interesting as the conflict of our story heats up. So if you're telling a story, the conflict of the story is whatever the problem is that must be solved. Will the boy get the girl? Will the hero save the day? Will the foolish virgins find oil for their lamps in time? And then things get even more interesting. Jesus tells us, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So maybe they're waiting at a friend's home around the corner from the bride's home. Maybe they're up on a hill overlooking the bride's home. We don't know. But for some reason, the bridegroom is delayed. And here's where our story connects with the theme Jesus is pounding home for us. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are waiting for him to return. And he could come at any moment, but he's delayed. One year goes by. Two years go by. A hundred years go by. Two thousand years have gone by. And he's still not returned. And so like these girls here, we can't wait in the ready position forever. We can't literally stay awake the whole time. Eventually we have to sleep. Eventually we have to grind in the mill. Eventually we have to work in the field. We must eat and drink and get married. Life must go on. You see, the problem in our story is not that these girls fall asleep, because even God's people have to sleep. The problem is that five of them don't have any oil for their lamp when the bridegroom does come. But because the bridegroom is delayed, the foolish virgins do have a chance to get ready. Later in the New Testament, the apostle Peter, dealing with the fact that Jesus hasn't come yet, writes this, to his churches. He says, the Lord is not slow. It's not like the Lord is, just can't get there in time. He's got a purpose. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, Jesus is delayed because he wants the five foolish virgins to realize they don't have any oil. And what Jesus is telling us here is that if we're hoping to go with the bridegroom to the wedding feast, if we're dressed and we think we're ready and waiting to join Jesus in the kingdom of heaven forever, we must be prepared. And this passage is saying to us, take a moment since he's not here yet. Don't be foolish. Check to see if you have any oil. Have you ever been dozing off in the afternoon and then realized that you forgot something, you had something to go do? And so it's this beautiful moment. I don't know about you, but my face gets like hard and 
fat feeling, you know, and my eyes get heavy. And the sweet experience of giving yourself in to falling asleep in that moment. But then all of a sudden you realize, oh no, I'm supposed to be somewhere. And so you jump up out of the recliner and you think to yourself, what do I do? Do I just get in my car and go? Do I call him and tell him I'm going to be late? It's the worst feeling ever. Maybe not ever, but it's a bad feeling. And that's how these foolish virgins should have felt. They should have been sitting there dozing, and then it should have dawned on them. They have no oil, and the bridegroom's delay is gracious and kind. He's giving them half the night to remember so they can prepare. Jesus goes on, but at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So the bridegroom is here. They wake up and they trim their lamps. The cry that the bridegroom is here means that he's on his way, giving them time to get their lamps ready. And then they light their lamps, and all ten of them were there with their lamps burning. They're dressed. They're excited. Their hearts are pounding. This is the moment when all of a sudden, Five of their lamps start to go out. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. We all know that generosity is a Christian virtue. The wise virgins are there with flasks full of oil. And the foolish virgins are looking at their flasks, thinking, hey, y'all have plenty of oil. Can you spare a bit over here? But they can't share. Can you imagine what would happen if they all ran out of oil on the way? There's this amazing celebration as all ten of them are leading the way with bright lambs all the way to the wedding feast in a town with no street lamps, no electricity at midnight, when all of a sudden all of their lamps go out and all they have is the light of the moon and they're only halfway to the feast. It would ruin the celebration. So the wise virgins are not being selfish here. There's just no way they can share without risking not being able to light the procession all the way to the feast. The only hope the foolish virgins have is to quick buy some oil at midnight in a town with no 24-hour Walmart. And so that's what they go to do. And this teaches us that no one else can prepare us for Jesus' return. Every single one of us must prepare ourselves kingdom of heaven is not like a kid going on a vacation whose mom always packs his bag for him. No one enters the kingdom of heaven unless they are personally, individually prepared. So let's just clarify what Jesus is saying here. He's saying it's possible to believe we are a Christian. It's possible to think we're ready to be dressed and waiting for Jesus to return, 
to be looking forward even to going into the wedding feast with Jesus for eternity and then to go about our normal life with other church members eating and sleeping but to not be prepared. So everything looks the same on the outside. These girls are dressed the same. They all have lamps. They're all in the same place doing the same thing. But five of them are prepared and five of them are not. So the problem that must be solved that creates the conflict in our story this morning is that five young girls have failed to bring oil for their lamps. They were planning to lead the bridegroom in the procession all the way to the wedding feast, but they were not prepared. Which means the problem that must be solved in every one of our lives that creates our conflict is, are we prepared for Jesus to return? Do we have oil for our lamps? Which makes you wonder, what does the oil and the lamps represent in this story? In the book of Hebrews, in the 12th chapter, uh, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that God disciplines those he loves. If we're his child, he will not allow us to continue in sin, but he'll discipline us like a loving father disciplines his children. And none of us like discipline, he tells us, but it's meant to train us so that we can experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Nothing brings us more peace than the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then he tells us how we're supposed to respond to God's discipline. And essentially what the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12 tells us is that we have to get off the mat. He tells us to lift up our drooping hands and weak knees. He says we're like a crippled person who is healed by getting up and walking straight. Because that's what faith does. When we believe our sins are forgiven and that Jesus has healed us, and that he is transforming us into his likeness, once we believe that, then we stand up. What it feels like to stand up in that moment is what it's like to build new habits of holiness and righteousness in our life in response to God's discipline. It can feel like a crippled person trying to stand up and walk. That's what it feels like to put to death our sinful nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the writer of the Hebrews says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is Jesus' message in our story. That no one fail to obtain the grace of God. That it's possible for someone who believes they are a Christian to fail to receive God's grace. And if we try to obtain the grace of God after Jesus returns, it's going to be too late. And then the very next thing the writer of Hebrews says is this, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Friends, the question Jesus is calling us to all ask ourselves is, have we obtained the grace of God? Because the only way to be prepared for Christ is, is to have his grace. 
The only way we'll have the strength to choose heaven over a bowl of stew when we're tired and hungry is if we have the grace of God. Which takes us to the conclusion of our story. The wise virgins cannot share their oil, even if they wanted to, because if they did, there wouldn't be enough to light the procession all the way. The foolish virgins know this is true, and so they head out now to go and find oil at midnight. And then we're told, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And that's it. The door is shut. This is where we depart from a typical wedding. Jesus wants us to know that in this situation, it's final. It's permanent. And there's something ominous here about the way Jesus says the door is shut. And then afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. We don't know if they were able to find oil because it really doesn't matter at this point. They missed the procession. The bridegroom came and those who were prepared for him to come went into the feast with him and the door was shut. Afterwards, the foolish virgins come and knock at the door. Notice they still want to go to the feast. We can imagine they've been looking around frantically to find oil for their lamp. And they either found some, but not in time, or they couldn't find any, but then realized they had to get to the feast because they'd missed the procession. And so they decide to go. They knock on the door. They say, Lord, Lord, which means the identity of the bridegroom is now clear. This is Jesus. It's the Lord. And the fact that they repeat his name, they say, Lord, Lord, this is very important. For a Hebrew to repeat someone's name was a sign of love and affection. When Mary is listening to Jesus at his feet and Martha's upset about it, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. When King David's son Absalom dies, he cries out, Absalom, Absalom. When God meets Moses at the burning bush, he says, Moses, Moses. And these foolish virgins knock at the door of heaven saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But Jesus says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Which means the question is not whether we know Jesus. The question is, does Jesus know us? Which doesn't mean he doesn't know who the foolish virgins are. Of course he does. He's God. It means he doesn't know them personally. He hasn't chosen them. He doesn't have a relationship with them. He didn't die on the cross for them, even though they think they're his. And Jesus concludes by restating his main point. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So have we obtained the grace of God? Because it will be too late if we wait until Jesus comes. And just like it should have been obvious to the foolish virgins, they didn't have any oil, we should be able to know if we have obtained the grace of God or not. But unlike the oil in our story, God's grace is not something we can buy. God's grace is a free gift. And all we have to do is ask for it. 
when we admit we've sinned and cannot save ourselves, when we come to Jesus in sorrow over sin, trusting that he alone can and will save us, when we come to him longing, hungering, and thirsting for a righteousness that we do not possess, trusting that he and his power and his strength can move us to stand up with our crippled bodies. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, no ability on their own, no strength, nothing to offer but their sin. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Don't settle for a bowl of soup. Don't spend your life on that which cannot satisfy. Come, buy and eat the richest of food given to us without price. So God's grace is free. We receive it with repentance, which means we have sorrow, and then we turn from our sin to God for his mercy. We receive it with faith, which means we rest in God's word and his promises instead of our own ideas and our own efforts. And then the Apostle Paul tells us what grace does in the life of a believer so that we know we've received it. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, waiting for our bridegroom, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we know we've obtained the grace of God through faith when we trust God's promise to forgive us and to renew us into the image of his son. We know we've obtained the grace of God because it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, because it's training us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Don't just love God, hate sin. And then fall down at the feet of Jesus in repentance and faith. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Receive the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of our God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for your forgiving grace. We're grateful for your transforming grace. We're grateful, Father, that by your strength and yours alone can we be saved. That we have nothing, we have no money to buy what we desperately need. And yet you will give it to us 
And so, Father, I pray that each and every one of us would turn to you in true repentance and faith every moment, the rest of our lives, trusting in your kindness and your mercy and your willingness, knowing that your patience, your delay, is meant to bring all of us to repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.